The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke This is a Reconstructionist Radio Podcast. Please visit calcedon.edu to download this book and many others. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. My name is Shelby Luke and I will be reading from Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. Antinomianism versus Dominion. Chalcedon Position Paper, number 9. A contemporary historian raises the question with respect to the early church, quote, Why were the Christians persecuted? Unquote. The Romans pretended that the Christians were refusing to obey minor and trifling rules and regulations out of perversity and rebelliousness. The real issue, Giles Quespel points out, quote, was an implicit recognition of the divinity of the state, unquote. Our Lord did not allow the church to forget this fact. In his letter to the church in Pergamos, Revelation 2, 12 through 17, our Lord reminds the church in Pergamos that they dwelled, quote, even where Satan's seat is, where Satan dwelleth, unquote. These are strong words. They come, moreover, from Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Pergamos was a center of emperor worship, of state worship. The Roman state was seen as the divine order. Peace on earth meant the prevalence of Roman law and power. Quote, the good life. Unquote, meant the state-controlled life, a life governed from cradle to grave by the Roman state. Law was not seen as given by God, but given by Rome. Jesus Christ says to the church in Pergamos, quote, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Unquote. For us today, the point of this statement is easily missed. Our Lord refers to the Roman sword and declares that he, not Rome, carries true authority. The two-edged sword of Rome was a symbol of Roman power and authority, but Jesus Christ calls Pergamos, the center of Roman power in Asia, quote, Satan's seat, where Satan dwelleth, unquote, and declares that true power and authority are in his hands. 
Rome or Satan has a sword in its hands and is able to kill, but Christ can slay man, empire, Rome, and Satan with the sword or power in his hand. Our Lord, therefore, condemns all who hold to, quote, the doctrine of Balaam, unquote. The false prophet who taught compromise and led Israel into idolatry and fornication. To be a Balaam is to be one who obeys Caesar rather than Jesus Christ. About the time of our Lord's birth, Rome's cynicism began to triumph. The old religions of Rome gave way to the open deification of the state and the emperor. Its plan of salvation became statist power. In 9 BC, Augustus Caesar dedicated the altar of peace, Era Pasis, on the field of Mars, the god of war. The only peace Rome could imagine or secure was by military force, by means of the subjugation of the peoples at home and abroad. This, quote, peace, unquote, meant the suppression and death of all who resisted Rome's power. Roman salvation thus came to mean submission to the, quote, divine, unquote, coercion of Rome. Rome forced the imperial cult on all the empire and even on its allies. Roman salvation came to mean obliteration by Roman power. In this situation, real resistance came from only one source, the Christians. The Christians were prepared and believed in terms of Scripture that they were required to be obedient to all human authorities in the Lord. An example, in terms of His law word and His prior authority. Thus parents, masters, authorities, and rulers are to be obeyed and honored in their discharge of their God-given duties. What if the state ceases to be God's ministry of justice? What if it becomes a terror to good works rather than to the evil? Romans 13, 1-5 Their obedience had to be, quote, for conscience' sake, unquote. Romans 13, 5 An example in obedience to God because of His Word, for, quote, we ought to obey God rather than men, unquote. Acts 5.29 As a result, Christians who are faithful to Scripture have been throughout history the greatest source of principled obedience and principled disobedience because they act in terms of faithfulness to God in both. Christians move in the certain faith that God's word is true when it declares, quote, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap, unquote. Galatians 6, 7. This is not merely a hope or a general promise, but God's law word. We can count on it. If we render a false obedience or a false word in anything, we shall inescapably reap a harvest of judgment. Rome reaped such a harvest, as will the nations of our time also, unless they repent. World history is world judgment from the world king, Jesus Christ. In our day, as humanism more and more governs the nations of the world, the nations seek increasingly to play God. Now it is the prerogative of God and of God alone to have all things under His jurisdiction. In the Bible, throughout the history of Israel, Church and state were kept separate, but together under God. Both church and state must serve the Lord, but each in its place. 
one as the ministry of grace and the other as the ministry of justice. For either to claim powers and jurisdiction beyond its sphere is a sin. All things must be under the Lord, not under the church nor the state. Many of the evils of history have had their origin in the attempt of church and state to play God over man. The modern state is dedicated to this goal, to be God walking on earth. A God has total jurisdiction and grants bounties, gratuities, or grace to those under his sway. The state increasingly claims that every area is under its jurisdiction, and any freedom the church, Christian school, family, college, press, or other agency may possess is dependent on a revocable act of grace by the state. Thus, in 1957, the California State Supreme Court held, quote, It is fundamental that the payment of taxes has been and is a uniform, if not a universal, demand of government, and that there is an obligation on the part of the owner of property to pay a tax legally assessed. An exemption from taxation is the exception and the unusual. To provide for it under the laws of this state requires constitutional or constitutionally authorized statutory authority. It is a bounty of gratuity on the part of the sovereign, and when once granted, may be withdrawn. It may be granted with or without conditions, but where reasonable conditions are imposed, they must be complied with. Quote, A church organization is in no different position initially than any other owner of property with reference to its obligations to assist in the support of government by the payment of taxes. Church organizations, however, throughout the history of state, have been made special beneficiaries by way of exemptions. Unquote. The state not only claims total jurisdiction, but it often demands unquestioning obedience. In a case in Georgia, a state official, in dealing with a church which stood in terms of its God-given freedom as well as the plain wording of state law, cited Romans 13, 1-5 as his, quote, justification, unquote. Pastor John Weaver reminded the state officer of Acts 4.29 and cited the following examples of obedience to God rather than man from Scripture. 1. The midwives refused to obey Pharaoh, Exodus 1, 15-22, 2, 1-10. through 10. Would it have been better for the midwives to have murdered and thus obeyed Pharaoh, or disobey Pharaoh and obey God? 2. Rahab refused to obey the king's order and would not deliver up the spies. Joshua 2. Hebrews 11.31 God commends Rahab for her, quote, disobedience, unquote, and lists her in the hall of the faithful. Hebrews 11. 3. Daniel refused to obey the king's order and God blessed him greatly. Daniel 1. 4. The three Hebrew children refused to obey the king's command and were thrown into a fiery furnace. Daniel 3. 5. The apostles refused to obey, quote, the law, unquote, that forbade them from preaching the gospel and were persecuted, beaten, imprisoned, and killed. Acts 4 through 6. In recent years, all too many churchmen have stressed total obedience to the state. 
while pursuing a radical antinomianism or lawlessness in relation to God and His law. It is not surprising, therefore, that humanism has taken over the reins of power. Antinomianism, in effect, says of the Lord, quote, We will not have this man to reign over us, unquote. Luke 19.14 While saying to the state, It is our principle and religious faith that we obey your law rather than God's. Man, in all his being, because he is God's creation, is a law creature. His life runs on required patterns of food and sleep, work and rest, and his being requires an ordered, patterned life, a law life. Death is beyond law and structure. The life of a creature is inseparable from it. The only question with respect to the relationship of man to the law is, what law will man live under and obey? Fallen man has chosen humanistic law. Every non-Christian state will have some form of humanistic law. Humanism believes in salvation by man and by man's works and laws. Is there a problem? The answer of humanism is another law, another bureaucratic agency, psychiatry, humanistic reforms, and the like. All involve one or another form of censorship and external coercion and control as the means of educating, changing, and or brainwashing men. But censorship in all its forms does not work because it cannot change man's heart. For example, in early America, virtually no laws existed with respect to pornography. The laws have come with the rise of pornography. The earlier absence of legislation did not create pornography any more than the more recent laws have been able to suppress it. The answer to the problem is regeneration and sanctification, not humanistic legislation. The more we rely on status legislation to, quote, remedy, unquote, a problem, the more power we give to the state and the less we trust in God's saving power and his sanctifying laws. When we trust the state, we become dependent upon legislative, bureaucratic, or judicial grace rather than on the grace of God. Gaines Post, in Studies in Medieval Legal Thought, Public Law, and the State, 1100 through 1322, 1964, showed that expressions such as public or common utility, welfare, emergency, necessity, and, quote, necessity knows no law, unquote, as well as reasons of state or public welfare, had their origin in Roman law. Their use was to justify extraordinary power and authority. This was in opposition to another belief which held that, quote, the state itself had no rights, sui generis, unquote, that the state itself is under law. Similar developments took place in private law to justify necessity, such as using hunger to justify theft. The use of the necessity argument gave private man and the state both a priority over God's law and a freedom from restraint. The limited exemption given by necessity to private man has been steadily replaced by the necessities of the state. The argument from necessity was to its core humanistic. It held that man's necessity 
as viewed by man, and the state's necessity, as viewed by the state, overrule all law and all other jurisdictions. The U.S. Federal Register gives us volumes of, quote, necessary, unquote, powers for state-determined emergencies. This should not surprise us. When men see as the, quote, necessary, unquote, answer to a problem, statist law and coercion rather than God's saving power and sanctifying law, the state will be the ministry of continuing necessity and emergencies world without end. Both church and state and man in his every sphere must be bound, however, by the necessity of God's total word. The word of God has ceased to be the necessary and compelling law word of God for most churchmen. Our emergencies are not seen as sins, the remedy for which is God's grace and law, but its needs, and the state becomes the purveyor of status bounty and grace to man in his need. Because we have a non-biblical view of sin, we have a non-biblical and status view of grace. We are all of necessity nomians, advocates of law, and antinomians, anti-law. The only question is, whose law do we advocate, and whose law do we oppose? All too many today live by the state's law and grace and shall perish from it, instead of looking to the Lord and His grace and law. Grace and law are inseparable. Our salvation in Christ is an act of law. It is Christ's satisfaction by His atonement of the law and justice of the triune God. As our substitute and representative man, as head of the new humanity, Jesus Christ pays our death penalty from the law. He frees us from the penalty of the law, from the law as an indictment and death sentence, to free us to a way of holiness, the very law of God now written on our hearts and an aspect of our new nature. As fallen men, we sought salvation by our works. We believed that man as his own God could determine in his private, social, and status life good and evil or establish law for himself. This was our depravity and our original sin, our sin in Adam as members of his humanity or race. In Jesus Christ, we know by grace that we have been freed from that hostility to the Lord and his law, from antinomianism in relationship to God. We are now antinomians with respect to Satan's program, Genesis 3, 5, and every church or state which seeks to promote and develop Adam's rebellion against God. The early church, knowing that grace, refused to submit to Caesar's licensure, regulation, taxation, or control. They grounded the resistance on obedience to God, quote, We ought to obey God rather than men, unquote. For them, Caesar was an antinomian in rebellion against Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. They prayed for Caesar, sought to convert him, obeyed him wherever God's word permitted, but they rendered obedience, quote, for conscience sake, unquote, only in terms of God's word, never in violation of God's word and sovereignty. The same issue is with us today. The modern state can no more defy Christ the King and survive than could Rome. And the same is true of the church. Howard Amundsen 
has aptly called the 1980s, quote, the Dominion Decade, unquote, because of the arising interest in Christian dominion and reconstruction. Christ the King always has dominion. Let us exercise dominion under Him and in Him to His praise and glory. January 1980 The Question of Authority Chalcedon Position Paper Number 10 A major challenge confronts American churches and Christians with the January 1980 proposal by President Carter that a military draft registration be instituted, perhaps for both men and women, a question he left open. Our first duty is to protest such a registration, if framed into law, and then, if instituted, to give serious consideration to resistance. However, it is important before reacting to any measure to know what Scripture teaches. First of all, war in the Bible was to be waged only if in defense of justice and to affect godly order. In terms of this, such warfare was called the wars of the Lord, Numbers 21.14, and required religious preparation and dedication, Joshua 3.5. Second, the soldiers drafted were no younger than 20. Numbers chapter 1, verses 2, 3, 18, 20, and 45, chapter 26, verses 2 and 3. And it was a selective calling of all such, in some cases, a very limited one. Numbers 31, 4. Third exemption was for the newly married, Deuteronomy 24, 5. The Levites, or clergy teachers, Numbers 1, verses 48 and 49, and for those who had newly built a house or planted a field, Deuteronomy 24, 5. The principle being that production and continuity take priority over defense. Fourth, total war was forbidden, Deuteronomy 20, verses 10, 19. Fifth, defensive warfare was alone legitimate, and hence the number of horses used in military offensives were severely restricted, Deuteronomy 17:16. More could be added, but for our purposes the relevant laws are these. They restrict warfare to a defensive purpose, and the family has priority. The basic defense of a country is the protection of the family. This fact was echoed in the U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, which limits the calling of the militia, the older term for a drafted army, to three purposes only. 1. To execute the laws of the Union. 2. To suppress insurrection. And 3. To repel invasion. As John W. Burgess pointed out 50 years ago, foreign wars were not included, and Wilson's draft in World War I violated the Constitution. John W. Burgess, Recent Changes in American Constitutional Theory, pages 59 FF. Since then, interventionism has been the U.S. policy, intervention in foreign affairs, and intervention in domestic affairs, into the life of the family, the church, economics, etc. World War I, supposedly a war to make the world safe for democracy, and a war to end all wars, led instead to the bloodiest and most murderous of centuries. Each instance of interventionism since has left the world even worse off. The state is not an instrument of salvation. The family is God's basic institution, 
It was established in Eden, and it is prior to both church and state. It is under neither of them, but it is a separate government which is directly under God. Moreover, God's basic plan of government in church and state is based on the family and the head of the household, the man. This is the system of elders, also called captains, bishops, presbyters, first as rulers of the family, then as the rulers and all of society. Deuteronomy 1, 13-15 Thus, instead of the church or state ruling the family, the family-based leadership is to rule church and state as well as the school. But the modern humanistic statism is both anti-God and anti-family. The family is a very powerful institution with a capacity for survival and revival which has outlasted empires. Nations which work to destroy the family succeed thereby in destroying themselves. The state then perishes and the family revives. The state prefers atomism and encourages social atomism because an atomistic society may be a more violent and rebellious one, but is the less successful resistant one by far. The freedom of the family is thus anathema to the modern state. However, long before the modern state began its attacks on the family, men had begun a rebellion against the family and the responsibilities thereof. The double standard was a product of this revolt. Scripture makes very clear that the greater the responsibility, the greater the culpability. The sins of a man are thus more fearful in God's sight than the sins of a woman, because God has given primary authority to the man. Thus God declares to the men of Israel, quote, I will not punish your daughters when they commit whoredom, nor your spouses when they commit adultery, for themselves are separated with whores, and they sacrifice with harlots. Therefore the people that doth not understand shall fall, unquote. Hosea 4, 14. Moreover, our Lord says plainly, quote, For unto whomsoever much is given of him, shall be much required, and to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Unquote. Luke 12.48 This means that first, God requires more of any and all who hold positions of privilege and power. Status increases accountability. It does not give exemption from it. God, being the source of all power and authority, Romans 13.1, all such positions require a greater faithfulness to his law, a closer and more conscientious life and morality, and a greater culpability. The sins of a pastor or president are more culpable before God than the sins of a doorman. Second, the sins of a man are more culpable before God than the sins of his wife or daughters. His headship is not ordained for irresponsibility, but for responsibility. Third, not only God, but men live by this rule. For, quote, to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more, unquote. Luke 12:48. This is an obvious fact in the political sphere. Politicians are rightly judged more severely by the populace than are ordinary citizens. But men have long been in revolt against the responsibilities and authority of manhood. They have left the training of children, matters of religion, and the government of the family to their wives. By means of the double standard, 
they for long exempted themselves from the sexual morality they required of their wives. Sexual faithfulness was seen by all such as a necessity for women, not for men. This was the creed of men's liberation movement. Not surprisingly, in time, women began to make the same demands, as set forth in the women's liberation movement. All the immaturity, irresponsibility, and freedom to sin long exercised by the modern male was now exercised or demanded by the woman. Women's lib was men's lib coming home to roost. Before we condemn women's lib, let us remember that God, faced with a like movement in Israel, condemned rather the irresponsible men and declared judgment on the whole culture. Hosea 4.14 Of course, this movement has not stopped with the women. What men practice, their families will readily learn. Women's lib is being logically followed by children's lib. The culmination of such a course is the tyranny of children. Isaiah 3.12 declares, quote, As for my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. Unquote. As Pastor Jean Breed of Georgia has pointed out, we have a fulfillment of this prophecy in the present occupant of the White House, and, we can add, in all too many other childish leaders of the nation. What we fear and love most are often closely related. Thus, today, many men fear an economic collapse more than anything else. All too often, at the root of such a fear is a love of money, which money and economic collapse would endanger. It is thus important for us to ask what it is that the United States loves and fears on the world scene, and what it desires to protect. Certainly it is not Christianity which the U.S. loves and seeks to protect. The U.S. has in recent years done more for Red China and the Soviet Union than for Christianity. When Carter speaks of, quote, human rights, unquote, he means humanistic rights. The persecuted Christians of Red China and the Soviet Empire mean as little to him as do the persecuted Christian schools and churches of the U.S.A. He has been indifferent to the jailing in recent years of men like the Reverend Levi Wisner and Reverend Lester Roloff. The Afghans, in their treatment of themselves and others, have not been any better than the Soviet Union. Whatever the sins of the Shah, Iran still had a better life under him than at any other time in recent centuries. If it is oil we want, why are we selling Alaskan oil abroad? However, we add up the foreign policy scene, we cannot see anything but ugly humanistic policies which are designed to further humanistic statism and its power politics. Moreover, every modern state has demonstrated that its enmity with foreign powers is a transitory and changing thing. Yesterday's and tomorrow's enemies are today's friends and future friends as well. Each and every modern state has one abiding enemy against whom perpetual warfare is waged under the facade of certain and, quote, welfare, unquote. That abiding enemy of the modern state is its own people against whom perpetual war is waged in the name of perpetual concern. The foreign enemy is often real, but it is the domestic enemy which is constant. This should not surprise us. The humanistic state is at war with God. For God's law, it substitutes the state's fiat law. 
because the humanistic state is at war with God, it will be at war with every faithful Christian. Even more, it will be at war with man as such because man is God's image bearer. Therefore, the state seeks to remake man and to obliterate God's image. Igor Shafarovich in Alexander Shultzen's From Under the Rubble writes on the goal of socialism as not only the withering away of the state, but also, quote, the withering away of all mankind and its death, unquote, page 61. It works for the death of the family, the faith, the freedom of man, and all things else because it seeks a universal destruction, like the Marquis de Sade, who described the death of God, the Son, and of all creation as the great and most to be desired crime. God asked, quote, Can two walk together except they be agreed? Unquote. Amos 3, 3. Hence, he commands through Paul, quote, Be not ye unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Unquote. 2 Corinthians six fourteen. In terms of this, God's law forbids mixed marriages. In example, marriages with unbelievers. Deuteronomy 7, 3, Exodus 34, 12 through 16. It also prohibits alliances with ungodly nations. Exodus 23, 31 through 33, Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4, Exodus 34, 12 through 16. For a Christian to cooperate with a humanistic state in its humanistic goals is to be unequally and sinfully yoked. Now, Deuteronomy 22.5 forbids a woman from certain assumptions of male life and declares it to be an abomination unto the Lord, unquote, to do so. In the Institutes of Biblical Law, pages 434FF, I pointed out that earlier commentators had called attention to the fact that the reference in Hebrew is not to clothes alone, but is general. It refers to things, apparatus, implements, and weapons. Thus, Deuteronomy 22.5 clearly is against the drafting of women and the registration of women for such a military draft. Such a draft has, as its practical consequence, the destruction of God's order and of the family. Not surprisingly, within hours of President Quarter's address, many Christians were resolving to resist such a registration on biblical grounds. Quite rightly, they saw it as an evil. It involved, first, a plain violation of Deuteronomy 22.5. Second, it involved an ungodly yoking of Christians to a humanistic state and its law. Nothing could have been clearer to President Quarter than that such a measure would be offensive to countless Christians, but he gave priority to non-Christian considerations and left the matter an open question. Third, such a registration and draft requires submission to an ungodly yoking of men and women. A significant precedent for opposition was established in a Midwestern state by a state trooper in 1979. Ordered to serve in a patrol car with a female trooper, he refused on biblical grounds and won. The hearing was a most significant one. It was admitted that the trooper was one of the most able and honest of all men in the force, a man with an excellent record. 
the opposition to him from his superiors was motivated not so much by a pro-feminist perspective on their part, but by their hostility to the idea that any officer would place God's law above their own orders and regulations. Thus, the tacit issue was this. Does a man have a requirement to obey his superior officers rather than God? Or shall we, must we not rather say, with Peter and the other apostles, quote, We ought to obey God rather than men. Unquote. Acts 5, 9. This is one of the key issues of our time. We may be spared the necessity for a decision with respect to registration and the draft, but we are not spared from the issue itself. Who has the command word over us? God or the state? Which of the two must we at all times obey? The church has long had the luxury of a narrow and limited view of separation. It has been limited to separation from modernist churches. Modernism, of course, is humanism. And at issue is our separation from it also in school and state. The, quote, separated church, unquote, which is separated from the modernist church down the street, but is not separated from the humanistic state schools and from humanistic statism, is not separated to the Lord, but to compromise or to Pharisaism. It is of the world's humanistic civil order that Revelation 18.4 commands, quote, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not her plagues. Unquote. At issue is God's authority and law. March 1980. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. Jesus
Tell the 